Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Hall of Fame hurler Jim Palmer. And Jim Palmer has just fired a one-hit shutout. That was as well-pitched a ball game as I have ever seen. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with an Oriole legend. He's a three-time World Series champ. He won three Cy Young Awards, and he was elected into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1990. Ladies and gentlemen, Jim Palmer. Jimmy, thanks for coming on the program. Oh, you're welcome. Long time no see. Talk. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't been to Canvan Yards in a while to have my Jim Palmer talk in my locker. (laughs) Well, exactly. Well, you know, I mean, I, of course, when, let's see, probably the last time I talked to you, you were running around in your underwear in the locker room in Seattle because I knew Bob Melvin when he was managing the ball club because Bo Mel played what caught for the Orioles for about three years. Good thing about Bob is he always knew what the market was doing because he didn't play that much. So he could always give me a stock market report around the batting cage. Yeah. That's for sure. All right. I've had a lot of great players on this podcast, a lot of great pitchers. But today's a first. Jim Palmer, I'd have to say this. There's been a lot of firsts. This is a first. You're the only guy that's been on the program that dueled it out with Sandy Koufax. And I think it was game two in 66. You you won. I think it was his last time pitching. But, you know, as and I'm sure you had guys that that came before you that that were kind of. I don't know. I used to have talks with my grandfather all the time when he was alive, and he'd tell me the Ted Williams story and the Bob Feller. And, you know, that I wasn't around in that era. I never got to see it. It was almost like it was uh, like a movie. Like, yeah, dad. Yeah, Gramps. You know, I I see the old footage. But uh, for for the players of my generation, especially, we hear the Koufax stories. And but. But it's kind of an urban legend. You actually hooked up with him. You're the first. Uh, tell me about that World Series. You were you were uh, a young. I don't know if you were actually a rookie, but you were a young. No, it was my, it was my second year. Um, well, you, you got to understand. Let's go back to the, the to the well, really 1966. Uh, I came up in 1965. The um, the rules back then were instead of having a 40 man roster, you actually had 25 players, and then. You could protect one other guy. Anybody else had to stay in the big leagues. So um, in, in 1964, I played for Cal Ripken Sr. We, I played on the Aberdeen Pheasant team in A-ball. And, you know, we won 14 in a row in spring training. We won 25 of the first 29. We had an all-star team. We had, you know, Davey Leonard, who would pitch in the big leagues, was 16 and 4. Eddie Watt would pitch in the big leagues. He was 14 and 1. Tom Fisher was 15 and 6. I was 11 and 3. Mike Davis had a left-handed pitcher that would get drafted after that season by the Giants was 11 and 11 and 11 and 4. So we just had a really good team. Mark Belanger, who would win eight gold gloves, was our shortstop. He was rookie of the year. I think he hit about 220, but that tells you something about his gloves. So I went to the big league the next year and I roomed with Robin Roberts. Now he, Robin was 38, I was 19. That's back in those days, you actually had roommates. And he had about 270 wins, and I didn't have any. And the interesting thing, and you know, you always talk about, you know, you were talking about how your grandfather told you about certain guys, is that Robin, I mean, he was a, not only was an accomplished pitcher, I mean, he would end up going to Cooperstown. He played with the Whiskers. 
you know, I used to ask him, I said, Robin, how'd you always win 22, 23, 24, 25 games? He said, well, Jimmy, I pitched in relief. I pitch on Sunday and, you know, start. I mean, this is a guy that had, I think, 605 lifetime starts and 307 complete games. And then I come back in relief on Tuesday and then I would start again on Thursday. So that's the guy I learned from. So, you know, so Robin, I, I, I'm, I'm a rookie in 65. I think I'm going to the minor leagues and, in, um, you know, in, in, in 66, because we, you know, we have some older guys. I kind of, like I said, had to be there and we trade for Frank Robinson in the winter of, uh, of 1966. We trade Mill Pappas who had went over 200 games. Uh, I think he won maybe 99 in the American league and 101 in the national league. So he won over 200 games and, you know, we traded him to Cincinnati. They said Frank was an old 30 and Frank hits 49 home runs two in the World Series, he's the MVP, wins the Triple Crown. And we all already had a good team. We, we had, in 65, won 94 games, but the Twins won 102. You know, we had Boo Powell on that team. You know, we had, uh, you know, Brooks Robinson, who had been MVP in 64. You know, we had a lot of good players. Paul Blair was just coming to the big leagues. Same with Davey Johnson. Andy Etcheberry was a catcher, bonus kid. So, you know, the, 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 the crux of the ball club was there, but Frank kind of made everybody better. So, you know, we end up, well, you know, back then you didn't have to win a championship series. That didn't start till 1969. So we win the, actually pitched the clincher. Somehow I was on the mound today in Kansas City, and we knew we were going to play whoever was going to represent the uh, the Dodgers. So Koufax, you know, Sandy, I believe, was 25-7 and seven with a 190 one ERA in 1966. But he was 30 years old. He had had some elbow problems. I was 20. And um, Brett, the first game, uh, you know, they had won in '63. They beat the uh, they, they beat the, the Yankees, and then in '65 they beat the Twins. And we were the underdogs. And in the first inning, Drysdale, because of the fact that the Dodgers had a close race, Koufax didn't pitch on the Jewish holiday, so he was not going to pitch till game two. Don Drysdale, who was you know Hall of Famer or at least potential on his way to the Hall of Fame. And Brooks and Frank hit home runs in the first inning, and I'm sitting on the bench, and I go, gee, we might have a chance to win this game. And then Dave McNally starts for us, and he struggles early. Mo Jabowski was a relief pitcher we had picked up on waivers from Kansas City for $25,000. He comes in and strikes out 11 Dodgers in six and two-thirds innings. And even at 20, I was smart enough to realize they had a little trouble with a high fastball. And that's pretty much what I kind of threw. Wow, that's awesome! And the recollection well, you, that you just had there is well, you know, but well, you know, it's funny when you, you know, when you go to a World Series and you know for the first time, I mean, you're in awe. I, you know, I was a kid. I, I was adopted at birth in New York. I grew up in, in New York for the first nine years, and then moved out to California. Lived in Whittier and Beverly Hills, and then went to high school in Arizona. I mean, I used my, I used to run down the end of the driveway to to get the Daily Mirror to see if the Yanks, you know, Yanks swept too because they played doubleheaders every Sunday. So, you know, I mean, you played on a club at what I think set the all-time record, at least at the time, what, in 2001, 114 wins? Well, 116, Jimmy. <laughs> Pardon me? 116. <laughs> no, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> Maybe the, I guess the, well, okay, the, Yankee, the, the Indians in 54 in a 154-game series, they, they won the most up until then. They won 111, and they beat my Yankees, and then they, you know, they got beat four straight by the Giants. You know, that's, a, that's the, the, the the series where, you know, Mays makes the great catch over his shoulder at the, off of Vic Burtz of the uh, Cleveland Indians, you know, about 460 feet at the polo grounds. 
But so, you know, I kind of grew up always wanting to play in an Oral Series. And, you know, here we are. I'm going to get to pitch against Koufax. I just really, to be honest, I didn't want to embarrass myself. And as it turned out, you know, it was a nothing-nothing game going into the fifth inning. And Willie Davis, I mean, it wasn't particularly bright. It wasn't one of those, you know, uh, Oakland skies or San Francisco skies where, you know, you can really lose balls in the sun. He just dropped two balls, picked up the second one, threw in the dugout, and we got some unearned runs. And we would go on to, you know, I would, would actually pitch my first shot out ever uh, in the major leagues. And we would win games three and four and back in Baltimore, one nothing, one nothing. Wally Bunker, who had been rookie pitcher of the year in 60, what, 64, he pitched the one nothing game and McNally came back and beat Drysdale. Uh, you know, Blair hit a home run off of Osteen in game three, and then Frank Robinson hit another home run off of Drysdale. We won one nothing, and the series was over. Pretty shocking. I think we, I think we even shocked ourselves. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned you were born in Manhattan, New York. Uh, you had an interesting childhood. You went to Beverly Hills. You ended up in Scottsdale. Uh, tell me a little, just tell me about a young Jim Palmer, what your childhood was like. Well, I mean, I was, you know, like I said, I was adopted. My dad, uh, dad was in the dress business. He owned a couple of uh, dress companies. My mom had come to from uh, Omaha, Nebraska and put her youngest brother through Juilliard school of music. He went on to play with Tommy Dorsey's band. Uh, they adopted my, uh, my sister, Bonnie, about 18 months before me. And then my dad, um, you know, my dad, my mom in, in adopted me. My wife actually four playoffs ago traced my heritage and I'm about a hundred percent Irish. I had no idea. You know, my parents were born in uh, County Clare and County uh, Leitrim in, in Ireland, immigrated to the United States. And, you know, I was born and then put up for adoption. And, you know, I, I, a lot of people say, you know, when you get adopted things, you know, it can be tough, but I, I, I won the lottery. I mean, I had great parents, very supportive. Uh, my dad do, did have, not that I knew about this when I was nine or 10 years old, but he had heart problems. He passed away and we left New York and went out to California and uh, my mom sold the dress companies. And, uh, and that's when I first started playing organized baseball. Uh, in Whittier, I played, I played in the Golden State League. I played third base. I wasn't a second baseman like you, even though I'm sure you had to have played third base somewhere along the road. But I played third, pitched a little bit. We moved to Beverly Hills. I played Little League. 11 and 12, Pony League when I was 13, moved to Arizona, played Babe Ruth 14 and 15, went to uh, Utah one year for the, you know, the, the Western Championships, Hawaii. Uh, when I was 15, I walked 18 and 10 innings. I went to center field, hit a three-run home run, and came back with one day's rest and lost 2 nothing to a guy that he and I would become the number one and two pitchers in the Oriole organization. So, you know, and then when I wasn't doing that, I, you know, was an all-state basketball and football player. So, and I got good grades. So things were going pretty well when I went until I got to be about 17. Jimmy, uh, prom king too. It's a, no, it sounds no, like, it no, sounds no, like, I was too shy until I did the was, underwear ads, Brett, you know, until I started <laughs> doing the underwear ads in 1977, I was actually uh, kind of shy. So, uh, no, I let the, I let the, the prom king go to somebody. I was, um, I, I was, a, I was a little bit, yeah, I, I didn't have a lot of rhythm, <laughs> to say the least. So you graduated high school in 63. And this is, this is what I found interesting. Um, you were drafted by a lot of the, a lot of the teams in the pack six. It was at the time I, I played in that pack six, uh, but it's the same group. It was the SC, UCLA, a state, U of a Cal and Stanford. Uh, 
So you were you were recruited by a lot of those teams. And, and the, I, I want to find out if this is a true story. Arizona State coach Bobby Winkles tells you, Jimmy, go go get a little seasoning. Uh, and you went off to South Dakota where you end up coming back and signing uh, at the time. You know, you signed for 50 grand with the Orioles, which was a huge deal back in back in 1963. Uh, is that how it all happened? I mean, were you, were you dead set on? All right, I'm going to go to college. And then things just, you know, went forward. Well, actually, you know, professionally. I was. um I was a year before the draft, so you know. I know you went to USC. I when I was a junior in high school, I went. I actually went on a recruiting trip to, uh, and ha- and went to a uh, a back uh, backyard barbecue at Rod Dato's house in Pasadena. Uh, and the Dodgers, they told me, "Listen, this is what we want to have happen." They wanted me to go play, not in you know in Winter South Dakota, which was the Basin League. They wanted me to go up to Alaska and play. Uh, Al Pan- Campanis didn't like it when I went up to South Dakota, but the Dodgers basically said, listen, we're going to sign Jeff Torborg, and that's who they signed. We want you to go to SC for a year because, you know, I, I qualified for a non-athletic scholarship because of my grades. I think it was eighth in my class. And, you know, you can play basketball and you can play baseball. You know, Arizona State had actually had a better – I got scouted for basketball by UCLA. That would have been two years before Jabbar. Um, so I had a lot of options. But what Bobby Winkles at Arizona State said was very simple. He said, listen, if you, you know, we want you to go come here. Um, they actually had a really good baseball program. They had a, you know, they had doubled up UCLA at the, in the NCAA finals at halftime. So in 63, which is the year I graduated from high school, they were, they were better than UCLA in basketball. Now that would change, you know, when Wooden kind of took, took over and they went, won 10 national championships. But Bobby said, you're going to waste your time playing American Legion ball. So I have four guys from ASU, you know, a guy named Skip Hancock, who would sign with the Dodgers. Louis Lagunas was an all-American all second baseman. Sam Cook, Tony Alessi, they're all going up to play there. You'll have to go up there and make the team. Um, uh, you know, back then, you, you know, we'd work at the ballpark in the daytime, and we I think we got $325 to live. We lived in a basement, the five of us. And I played, you know, Jim Lombard was on our team. Four years later, he'd won a Cy Young Award for the Red Sox. Merv Redman, who had a nice career in the big leagues, hitting instructor for years. He was from Ball State. We had a guy named uh, Carl Morton who would win 18 games, even though he was an outfielder when he from Oklahoma State. He won 18 games. He became a pitcher and won 18 games for the, uh, for the Montreal Expos. So we had a pretty good ball club. Bobby Foy went to UCLA. Um, he was actually playing shortstop in that. I pitched my no-hitter for the Orioles. So I went up there, and I was the youngest guy in the uh, the league, and I did well. The Orioles sponsored that team for some – I didn't know that when I went up there. And as it turned out, every time uh, Jim Russo, our head scout, would come up, um, the, the nearest airport was in Pierce, South Dakota, so he would uh, they would say, you know, you need to drive Jim Russo back to the airport. So I'd get in the, you know, the club station wagon, and I'd drive him to the airport, so he got to know about me and – when I came back uh, to sign, went back to Scottsdale, uh, Louis actually, Louis Lagunas was driving my car and fell asleep. And I woke up because I had taken a nap and, and we're on the highway and we're out in four corners, you know, where the four states meet and we're up on the highway and I go to grab the wheel and he jerks it and we go off the, the road, roll the car three times, end up upside down. And Skip Hancock was in the car behind us. They picked us up. My car was totaled. Uh, they took our stuff to the bus station and ended up signing that afternoon. Even though Houston offered more money 
Uh, next day, 10 teams called. But I think in retrospect, you know, playing in six World Series in, what, eight or nine playoffs, it was a pretty good decision signing with the Orioles. It's pretty cool and, and really interesting times, too, before the draft. You know, I've had a few guys on. Reggie came on and Vita Blue and all, all you know, there were – Back then, it was it. It seemed like the the cream of the crop that you know the what today would be the first round picks were the majority of the players that were signed. It was just a different time. But for me, that never went through it. I always I always love listening to the stories of how it came to fruition, how you got that first shot, why you signed with the Orioles. It's just it's really interesting to me because I wasn't. Well, around you know, then. it's funny because after I played my first year for Cal Ripken. They said, we may have to protect you. Again, going back to what I talked about, you didn't have that 40-man roster. So they were going to have to maybe decide between the kid that beat me from San Carlos, California, Steve Carrier, and myself. So we both went down to Instructional League, and you know we played the Oakland. It was, you know, it was the Kansas City Royal team. And Dave Duncan played on that team. Blue Moon Odom played on that team. Catfish had just signed. Tony La Russa, I pitched a one hitter. He got the only hit. It was a really about an 18 hopper into, into right field, but this is 1964. It's become a line drive since then by, from Tony, especially if you ask him. But, you know, so I, we got to see these guys and, you know, they, they had a guy named Skip Lockwood. They'd give $125,000. So Charlie Finley was, everybody said he was a kind of a, um, I don't know, a, a little bit, uh, off the charts a little bit as an owner, but the one thing he did do, uh, was invest in young players. And, uh, you know, that's why they were good. And when they moved from Kansas City to Oakland, you know, in 72, 3, and 4, they would go on to win um, three world championships because a lot of the guys that, you know, you talked about, Reggie went to ASU. I went to ASU as an undergraduate, Stout Bando. You know, I used to work out with those guys. Gary Gentry, who would beat me in, uh, what, game three of the World Series in 69 with the Mets, went to ASU. So, yeah, a lot of us were maybe a year. Reggie was the first year of the draft, but I, I, I was in, you know, in '64, and then the draft started the next year. And uh, you know, I, I, our, our, our scouting um, director after we won the World Series said, "Yeah, there's this kid at ASU. You know, I don't think we're going to be able to draft him because we'll be drafting 16th because there were only 16 teams then." And so I, I go to a and there's an inter squad game, so I'm throwing and running and. And I watched the game and Gentry's pitching for one team and Reggie's on the other. And he singles and steals the base the first time. He triples the left center the second time. He he uh, throws a guy out trying to go from first to third. He's playing center field. Uh, you know, then he singles, steals another base, and then homers over the scoreboard. So I go back and Walter Shannon was our scouting director. He said, did you get a chance to see this Jackson kid play? And I said, yep. <laughs> and I said, now I know why we're not going to be able to sign him. And Reggie, I think, went number one with the with the A's. So, you know, and had a Hall of Fame career. At age nineteen, you go to in sixty four. You go, you play a ball. You're eleven and three. At sixty five, like you said, you you uh, you get you you get your first kind of your cup of coffee in the big leagues. You're nineteen years old, and then sixty six. You're you're. You get you're going to get your first ring at age twenty, or I think you might not even turn twenty. It, that we talked about earlier with the, uh, you and Koufax, but you bring up some guys, Brooks Robinson, who, who, you know, just an icon in this game. He's been around a long time. I've had a lot of interactions with him off the field, just a kind man. Very cool. You mentioned Frank and, and I always talk 
to, to people, you know, there's certain guys that are always mentioned, you know, in our circles when they say the greatest of all time, you know, Mays is always in there. And, and I always throw in, I said, you, you can't forget Frank Robinson and you can't forget Henry Aaron. Henry Aaron's known as that home run hitter. You know, you think Hank Aaron, you think home runs, but he was a lot more than that. Frank, you saw it up close and personal. I, I spent some time with Frank as a young, uh, when I was real young. His daughter used to babysit for me when my dad was off playing winter ball, and and I think it was Puerto Rico. So I yeah, got to know Frank yeah, at a young Frank age. Frank actually managed, yeah. When I hurt my shoulder uh, in 68, the winter of 68, uh, he managed the Sam Tercy Club, and uh, they set the all-time record for wins. You know, so uh, but, I actually got, that was my first interaction with him as a manager. Because, you know, I won the World Series game, and then I, you know, got some tendonitis. It turned into a torn rotator cuff. So I was on the way back, and, you know, I actually went 6-0 and with a no-hitter for, for Frank. But, um, yeah, Frank, you know, it's funny when, you know, you, you, you know we're, we're going into this World Series. Uh, I, we used to travel north with the Braves, uh, you know, a lot of the years. We'd go through Birmingham, some years New Orleans, you know, maybe Richmond, you know, which was their AAA team. So I got to know Dusty Baker pretty well, and I, I remember – talking to him and you know we you know i think if you were you know you had robin roberts with 270 wins when you're 19 you know that you, those are the type of guys you want to emulate if you're a pitcher but i used to always talk to dusty and i said so uh, how'd you learn you know i said you know you look like you know i threw him a hanging slider i think in birmingham and he hit it about nine nine miles but so and then ralph guard played on that team you know who, who could talk out talk anybody you know, a really good player, but talkative to guys. So, you know, they, they had a nice bunch of guys. And I always said, how did you learn how to play the game? He said, I just watched Hank Aaron. Because, you know, I think we think of the 755 home runs, but, you know, Hank, Hank Aaron got 3,700 hits. That'd be like saying, you know, well, you know, Sam Muser, all he could do was hit, you know, with his what, I think he got 3,630 hits, 1,815 at home and 1,815 on the roads. You know, Willie Mays, I, you know, I faced Willie Mays in my first All-Star game and he swung at three high fastballs and he went back and, and then I would always see him when I got in the Hall of Fame. He said, yeah, you know, that squeaky voice. He said, you were a wild, you were a headhunter. And I said, I had 30, 34 guys in 4,000 innings. I never, I didn't only hit guys when I wanted to, you know, guys in maybe in the kneecap where they didn't think you were trying to throw at them, you know, but, but the, 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 the guys that could play and Frank was one of them. I mean, I tell people, if Frank Robinson played in Camping Yards where the Orioles play now, I mean, you know, he had 49 home runs and won that triple crown in 66. He could take your best low and away fastball and hit it, hit it in the mezzanine in right center field. Was, you know, I mean, Clemente was probably one of the best all-around hitters along with Tony O'Reilly that I ever saw. But Frank could hit any pitch at any time. I mean, Dean Chance, you know, opening day in 67, he throws him two low and away sliders and he hits him with one hand over the bullpen in Baltimore. I mean, pitchers, pitches. So, you know, I mean, I still broadcast. I still watch games. And, you know, you, you know, I mean, you had three, three fabulous home run years. You know, whatever. There are some pitches that are destined to be hit. But when the most frustrating thing for a pitcher is when he makes his pitch and the guy, you know, hits it over the, <laughs> hits it over the right center field fence and you just tip your hat and you say, you know what? It guy's just better than me. And I mean, I learned that with K-Line, you know, who's a hall of famer passed away last year. And, uh, you know, I 19 years old, my first major league started strike him out on three pitches. Next time up fastball, curveball, strike one, strike two, catcher, catcher puts down change up, hits it off the foul pole for a home run. 
I throw him a 97 mile per hour fastball down and away. It's a single into right. And I, I looked, I looked at my catcher and I said, you know what? That guy's better than I am. So when you see those kind of players and you know what you played with Griffey, you saw Edgar Martinez, you know, you, mm-hmm. you, you were around a lot of really good players. They just, they play the game at a different level, you know, and they can, they, and you know, you talked about Brooks, Brooks, of course, won 16 straight gold gloves and, and, uh, you know, I, I always talk about Brooksy is, you know, if, if you ever wanted, you know, if somebody, you know, if you had a, I had daughters, but if you ever had a son, you'd want them to grow up like Brooks because as good a player as, and as nice a person and impact player Brooks was on the field, he was the same type of person when you would beat him in, in you know, just walking down the street or at the grocery store because he, he is a special type of guy. Yeah, I like the, how you said the pitcher's pitch. And and I'll talk this to young players nowadays coming up, you know, minor league players. And I said, you have no idea. You don't have to hit a home run. You don't have to hit one in the right center field seats. You don't even have to hit it in the gap. But if you take that pitcher's well-located, low and away at the knees fastball where he made a great pitch, and you take that pitch and you smoke it to right field for a single, I said, the look on that pitcher's face is going to be like, wait a minute, he's not supposed to hit that because we're not as hitters. I, I laugh all the time about, oh, don't come in to him. No, you know, as a pitcher, Jimmy, you make that good pitch down and in. That's a pitcher's pitch. That's not balls that we hit out of the ballpark. You watch ESPN at night. You watch the home runs of the day. Nine out of ten of them are in the middle of the plate. You might have set up in or set up away, but you lost it out over the plate. The pitcher's pitches we're not supposed to hit. And and I tell that to young hitters all the time. I said, if you can take that pitcher's pitch and do something with it, don't think he didn't notice it out on the mound. He noticed it. You got him set up for the next at bat. Now you know he's probably not going to go to that pitch unless he's really cat and mousing you. I love that part of the game, that, that, that next level thinking between the pitcher and the hitter. And, you know, I learned it as I got a little bit older, but, but that's a great point you, you, you pulled up right well, there. Well, pitchers. Brad, pitch. we used to call them information pitches because, um, you know, listen, everybody hits the mistakes. Everybody, you know, you go two and oh, and you throw a guy a fastball outside middle. And, you know, he, if he's, he has the luxury because of the count you know, to, to, to look for that pitch or look fastball or whatever. And if he hits it, you go, okay, you know what? You hope that, you know, you hope that he hit, kept it in the ballpark and it's not a double and, you know, you ne- get the next guy out. But when you throw a low and away pitch and, and the guy actually will take that pitch and hit it the other way. And the reason we call them information pitch is because, you know, I had a, a 286 lifetime earn run average. I didn't want that happening with the bases loaded or runners at second and third. So, you know, now it's, you know, not that analytics aren't important because they are, but you still have to, you know, you got to understand what you can do with them and how, how they, you know, apply to what you're trying to do, whether you're a hitter or or a pitcher. But I wanted to find out as as soon as I could, if, if a guy would subjugate his ego to do what you talked about. Is he okay? I mean, everybody likes to hit home runs, but if you hit 30 home runs and you get up, what, 600 times? What, you're hitting a home run, what, every 25 times up? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you know, Babe Ruth hit him every nine. Uh, you know, McGuire hit him, what, every nine and a half or 10 or whatever. So, you know, it's great to hit home runs, but can you hit pitchers' pitches? And I always used to think, you know, and what could be kind of interesting as we get into this, this World Series, 
um, you know, because both of these teams have a lot of good young hitters and, you know, we've got both teams have three guys with 30 or more home runs. And, you know, you got Freddie Freeman was, you know, he struggled early on and then really came on, but he was the MVP last year. There were a lot of real good players. And, and, and you know, you could see some of them, um, you know, just taking the ball the other way and giving you kind of like it's kind of like a prevent, prevent defense in football. You know what? I mean, if you're going to try, you know, when you get – but everybody way back because you got a big lead and you don't dump it off and take what they give you. Usually throw interceptions or incompletions or whatever. So the game really, even on the baseball level, is very much like other sports. You kind of you kind of have to look. And you know, Brett, we used to go into Kansas City when they had George Brett, who's in the Hall of Fame, and Willie Wilson with 230 hits, and Hal McRae, who was a great DH, and John Mayberry who hit 35, 37 home runs in that huge ballpark. And they would just take the, the plate and divide it, you know, seven seven balls wide, and they would either hit the inside four or the outside four till they got to two strikes. And then they would do exactly what you did, just, you know, ping it on the turf, you know, it was an astroturf field then. And we'd go to Kansas City versus playing in Baltimore, and I used to think the score was 2 nothing before I even went to the mound because they just had a great approach. You know, the, the Cardinals, when Whitey Herzog was there, you know, when they had what, Jack Clark and all these other guys, you know, Willie McGee and all those guys that took advantage of the ballpark they play. But if you, if, if, if you're just going to concentrate on hitting mistakes, you're probably going to hit 240. You're probably in today's game with the ball lively and the parks a little bit smaller. You'll probably hit 22 to 26 home runs. You know, you probably drive in 68 runs. You know, maybe you'll hit 240 with runners in scoring position. And the reason is because you've never, ever subjugated your ego to do what you started this conversation with. Hit a pitcher's pitch the other way. It's just because every, and especially now, everybody's all playing on one side of the diamond. That would have, I mean, I can just imagine throwing 96, 97 miles per hour on the outside corner and having everybody shifting, you know, to have the ball pulled. And when they hit a two hopper at a shortstop and nobody's playing there, that would have taken maybe, maybe happened one time and I would have gone crazy. Yeah, it is amazing. And the great teams that I've seen and, and the real interesting teams and the ones I like watching, you mentioned a couple of them. Uh, but the the really good teams I've been on, and especially against the tough pitchers, you know, the number one, number two starters on good teams is a base, a base hit um, or lead off with a double. Somehow we get them over, you know, hit the ball the other way, get them over, sacrifice, fly. It's one to nothing. And that wears on a pitcher after a while, especially when a team gets a reputation for that because they play the game right. They do the little things. And I remember on that Mariners team, you mentioned a little bit earlier, that's how we played. And it seemed like it was one, nothing by the time the, the, the national anthem was over because we did it and we did it every night and it wears on your opponent after a while, the good teams I played against when my team wasn't so good, it seemed like they did that. And before I, before I knew what happened, it was one, nothing because they just did the, played the game, right. They did it the right way. And it's really fun to watch and, and you don't get to see it necessarily too often. Well, there's little subtle things, you know, we go to Kansas city and, you know, Amos Otis would lead off and, you know, he could steal bases, really good center fielder. And if he got on base and then they had cookie Rojas, you know, who played forever but he could hit the ball to the right side with the best of them. So if I didn't make him put the ball, talking about Rojas in play, I mean, in the first three pitches, Rojas, Amos Otis was going to steal second base. 
you know, and I mean, I'd slide step, I'd get, you know, throw fastballs, give my catcher a chance, but he was that good a base runner. And then Cookie Rojas would hit one to second base to the right side. Uh, Otis would go to third and Brett would hit a fly ball and it would be one nothing. And, and you'd say, geez, how'd that happen? Well, it happened because they played the game the right way. And, um, you know, when guys try to hit home runs, I mean, how many times, you know, I mean, you, what, what, 2001, you hit 37 home runs and then a couple of years later you had 34. Yep. How many times did you go to home plate and hit home runs when you were really wanted to? Rarely. And how many at bat? How many at bats did you give up trying to do that? Well, I learned as I get old, as I got older. You know, I'd get to that. I, first of all, it had to be the count in my favor. I got to a point when I was younger in my career. You know, I hit twenty, twenty-five a few times, and there was a lot of that trying and a lot of wasted at bats. As I got a little bit older, and you mentioned him earlier, Edgar Martinez, I kind of really. When I got back to Seattle for my second run there, I really talked to Edgar a lot. And I listened and I, I, I was curious and I wanted to know as a right handed hitter, one of the best of our, you know, of our time. I, I was constantly at Edgar. Why are you? So, why are you so good? Why do you have two batting titles? And he would teach me the mental side and how to think and how to prepare. So I, at that stage, I really didn't do it. I mean, don't get me wrong, Jimmy. I, I had a pretty big swing and I was coming at you. So in a 3-1-2-0 count, I'm trying to hit this ball as hard as I can hit it. But the, but the thought of, no, I'm going to get a pitch and hit a home run. As I got older, I learned to compartmentalize that and, and resist that thought because I knew that wasn't a, a winning formula. A winning formula was getting a pitch usually away from me. I'm, I'm going to go to when you're in trouble, where are you going? You're going with a fastball away. That's that's kind of the yeah. safety zone for a pitcher. Well, three one two zero. What do guys that maybe don't hit that many home runs? What are they thinking? Well, I got to get something to drive to my pull field. Well, that plays right into your hands if you can locate a fastball low and away. So I went to that later in my careers. No, when the pitcher's in trouble, where's he going? He's going away. Where am I going to be set up to smoke something away? If it, if it if it happens and I hit a home run, great. But that's going to be the good approach over 162 games. Give me the best chance to be the best player I can be, if that makes sense. Well, my recollection, you know, as Edgar did in Seattle, that, you know, you probably the shortest porch was right center. Yep. And uh, my recollection is you guys, you know, if you know, when you're pitching, you think it's kind of like the new Yankee stadium where, you know, routine fly balls are home runs. If you hit them from the, what, 358 to the foul line because the ball flies, there's a jet stream, but it's also the shortest part of, of, of Yankee stadium. Well, that's the way I always felt when I was broadcasting, uh, you know, maybe you have to make an adjustment because the, you know, again, if, if you, you, you eliminate, you know, the inside three balls and you're looking the outside four, the ball on, on, if you don't get it to the corner and this is what Kansas city did is down the middle, because like you just said, you, you've, you know, you've, you've figured it out. You know what? I'm just going to look outside half. You know, I'm going to be looking there. So the ball, unless it's right on the corner is a pretty hittable pitch. If again, you're willing, you know, to, to make that commitment. And, you know, we had a guy, well, uh, uh, Jonathan smoke and, you know, he, and he, um, um, you know, he, he's he had a nice year with, um, with, uh, you know, with uh, Detroit this year, but I told him it took me about three years to realize, you know, you don't have to be swinging to, you know, swinging a pitch until you, you get two strikes. You know, you, I mean, if you just think of the dynamics of pitching, pitcher wants to try to get you to swing at, at his pitch as early as he can. 
if you only swing at what you're looking for, whether it's outside half or inside half or slow or hard, you know, contrary to two strikes where you have to look for everything, you know what, it's a harder to get a hitter out. And, you know, and, and some guys, it just takes a while for them to actually try to make that commitment or figure it out. And then, of course, the game is never, you know it as well as I do, it's never easy, but it becomes less difficult, you know, if you, if you try to, you know, stay with those, you know, tenants, whether you're pitching or hitting. Definitely. That's this, this topic. I love it. I could go all night on it, but we don't have <laughs> enough time. Um, I want to hear about 66 after that world series. Uh, you had some arm problems. All right. Uh, fact or fiction hurt your arm painting and it, and it kind of was a, well, no, what well, yeah, was, well, I was yeah. painting that. I was, it was an art. It was, you know, you, let's go back to 1966. Yeah, you know, when, when I made $7,000 my first year, I pitched in, 30 games maybe. And they gave me a $500 raise. So making $7,500, I end up leading the, win, the team in wins with 15. And, you know, my wife's pregnant and my first wife's pregnant. And, you know, we buy a $26,200 house. I couldn't, Dave McNally would, you know, he'd been big leagues a couple more years. He bought one for what? 28,250. But I couldn't afford that. So I, I buy this, you know, little 30 by 40, house and I couldn't afford a painter. So I would come home and, you know, like I said, I, I pitched, you know, let's see 129 innings in a ball. Then I went to instructional league. So another 50 some innings, so I pitched about 180 innings. And then the next year I didn't pitch as much. So I, then I went to 208 innings plus the world series game. So, you know, not that, I mean, you know, I ran and, you know, I'd run played for Cal Ripken senior. So I, you know, we knew how important conditioning was. So it wasn't like I was out of shape. It's just I never pitched that many innings. But what really irritated my bicep tendon, my shoulder, was I would come home and I would, you know, I put two coats of paint on my daughter's bedroom. And I irritated the bicep tendon. Sports medicine in 1966 wasn't what, what it is now. If I had been playing for the Dodgers, I would have gone to Robert Curlin. I would have gone to Bob Curlin because – a year and a half later, he looked at me and he said, put your hands up. I said, what? He said, you know, you buy settled tenant at I'm going to give you a quarter zone shot and you'll be fine tomorrow. And I was, but I went two years where I just had bicepital tendonitis. I don't think I could have pitched another game if I had to pitch, uh, you know, if that world series had gone a little bit more and you know, that whole winter, it just felt like there was, you know, I had tendonitis, but it just felt like my, put my arm over my head or, you know, when you're stretching and doing all this kind of stuff. And I, you know, I started out the season three and one, almost pitched a no perfect game up in New York, throwing about 85 miles per hour because my arm hurt so much. And one of the great stories is my next starts in Fenway Park. And so I go from giving up a hit in the seventh inning and then a double play ball to face 27 guys, one hitter, and begin throwing maybe 12 miles per hour slower. Yankees are swinging before the ball gets there. And then Mike Andrews doubles off the wall. George Scott singles at the left. Don Demeter hits a three-run home run. I've thrown three pitches. I've given up three runs after almost a perfect game. And uh, our pitching coach, Harry Burkeen, comes out. And he looks at Andy Etcherburn. And he said, how's he throwing? And Etch says, how would I know? I haven't caught one yet. I'd thrown three pitches and given up three runs. And they sent me out. You know, no no rehab, no nothing. I went to Miami and then ended up in Elmira and you know, the same thing in 1968. And uh, I kind of thought my career was over. So, yeah, it was two years where 
I was known as the last guy to beat Sandy Koufax. And, and, and the, about the only thing I could do was really look good running in the outfield. I mean, that's amazing because you are. I mean, what a bright future. At 66, you're, you're 19 years old. You win the World Series. Two years later, you're starting to question it because you can't get your arm right. Uh, no, well, you know, and you've lost your velocity. And, you know, back then, it's – they used to ask – George Bamberger would become our pitching coach. You know, we'd eventually go to manage Milwaukee and the Mets. But George was from Staten Island. And they would say, how do you handle sore arms in Baltimore? And they said, we, we send them to AAA, Rochester. And, that's, and that's the way – you know, you didn't have – you know, like the, the Orioles train in Sarasota, so – they call it the black hole. If you get hurt, you know, they send you, well, before the pandemic, they send you down to Sarasota. Let us know when he's well. But I was in Miami. I was in Elmira. I was in Rochester. You know, I made all the stops and I just, I, you know, I had had the tendonitis. Nobody had knew how to cure it. And until I found, and then I tore my rotator cuff in facing Billy Canigliaro and, uh, in, um, you know, Tony's brother, I got him. Oh, and two, I tried to, Throw, reach back and throw a fastball. I heard everything pop. I, I threw a couple of slow curveballs, called Cal Ripken Sr. out and said, I just, I don't know what I did, but I just did something to my shoulder. And I went to, I didn't go, I didn't even go to the team doctor. I went to a physiatrist in Baltimore and he said, uh, You've torn your rotator cuff. And I tore the, the infraspinatus, which is in the back of your shoulder. And I, you know, and I tore the nerves and all that. So but over seven weeks had rehabbed. I went to uh, instructional league in 1968. And that's, we talked about playing for Frank Robinson. Um, my last game in, in in instructional league in 1968 was 10 runs and 14 hits to Al Oliver, Bob Robertson, and the, you know, the really good Pittsburgh double-A team that were all playing instructional league. And George Bamberger said, give it another month. Go to Puerto Rico. And I said, George, they have real players down there. You know, I mean, they, they and they did. I mean, they had some of the better players that, you know, Puerto Rican players and, so I went down there and I rehabbed my arm and I took an anti-inflammatory pill called Edison, little blue and white pill, takes away inflammation. And oh, I gave well. up 10 runs. At, yeah, I had 10 runs and 14 hits on Monday. Went back to Baltimore, went to the bullet game on Wednesday night. And uh, a guy named Mark Foxman actually worked for Lily Pharmaceutical. And he said, do you ever try Edison? I said, no. He said, I'll go out and get you a bag at halftime. He said, just take it with food three times a day. So I go to Puerto Rico on Thursday. I throw on Friday. I've gone from 83 miles per hour to about 97. I my arm never hurt. I go six and zero, no hitter, and then I go back to the big leagues, and the story begins <laughs> again. Yeah, it's, it was really awesome. amazing. It, I mean, it, it was phenomenal. I mean, it, it was like somebody gave me a new shoulder. I mean, it took all the pain away. Um, you know, I kind of, you know, they had to do some roster stuff. But I would pitch every Sunday, and you know I went six and zero. We had a really good team, and you know I threw in a no hitter on the day that the uh, Colts lost to the Jets, which was you know if you're from Baltimore or at least you grew up and kind of watching the, the the original Colts play, it was a pretty traumatic day. But we were coming back from Mayaguez, hanging out the windows with transistors trying to you know Namath taking apart the Colts, you know in that victory. So um, you know it, it, my life just changed when I got well. Yeah, sixty nine. He goes sixteen and four with a two three, and you pitch your first no hitter against Oakland, and that's the year you lost to the Miracle Mets. To the Mets. So take me through that sixty nine season after two years of kind of a lot of people thinking, "What's going on with this Palmer guy?" You know, he was our guy. Now all of a sudden, is he going to pitch again? And now you come out firing again. And it, I think you you said it perfectly. 
this is where it all started for you. You know, we'll, we'll cover it later. Most winningest pitcher in the seventies. But take me that 69 year and, and losing the miracle Mets, but you're going to your second world series and you're like, right. I mean, I don't know if you ever met, met Mike Adamson. He was, we drafted him. He was our number one draft choice. He, he, he was a little bit before you, but he came out of USC and I was in Anaheim once and, you know, I had the bad shoulder and, I'm watching him throw on the sidelines and I'm going, whew, this was unbelievable. And, uh, you know, he would, you know, he would come up. And so when I went to spring training in 69, after I went, you know, played for Frank Robinson and, and, you know, down in Puerto Rico, he and I were kind of competing, you know, for a starting job. And, um, he, you know, he in 68, he came to the big leagues and his career changed. And I don't know if you ever saw a picture like this, but I mean, again, incredible stuff. Threw really hard, had a great curveball, you know, really good change up. And um, he's pitching against Tony Canicliero up in Fenway, and he goes, gets 2 and 0 on him, and Andy Etcheberry, our catcher, runs out. And Canicliero was the best high fastball, young high fastball hitter in, in the American League. And he says, um, You know, what do you want to do? And he said, what do, you, what do you mean, what do I want to do? I'm just going to throw the ball right by him. Well, when they last saw the ball, it was going over that Sitco sign, you know, way, way over in left, you know, not down the left field line, but to almost dead center left field. Yep. Big sign. And when they last saw it, and Mike Adamson was never the same pitcher. And, um, I mean, you know, confidence or whatever the case was. So I went to, you know, went to spring training and, you know, I had a good spring. And, of course, you know, the Orioles would, we win 109 games that year. So we had, you know, 69, we had what, as you said, Cuellar and McNally. We traded for Mike Cuellar that year from the Houston Astros. He, um, I think he tied for the Cy Young with Denny McLean in 69. He was 24 and 8, didn't get a third place vote. So he finished second in 70. So, and Mike won 139 games in seven years for us. Marvelous pitcher. Dave McNally was on a run where he was going to win 20 games four times. So, I kind of blended in. We had a guy named Tom Phoebus who had pitched a no-hitter in 68 and then won 15 or 16 games. Um, so, you know, we had plenty of pitching. You know, we had Frank Robinson. We had Blue Powell would be second in the MVP. Brooksy was five years from being the MVP. So we had Paul Blair in center, Don Buford. When Earl Weaver be- became the manager in 68 at the All-Star break, he moved Buford to, from second base to left field. And um, Don became one of the best leadoff guys in baseball, at least in the American League, for the, the next three years, you know, high on base percentage, switch hitter, not a great defensive player, but very good offensive player. And, uh, you know, you had Frank and Wright, and then you had Davey Johnson, and, uh, you know, you had Brooks, you had Blanchard shortstop with the eight gold gloves, and then you had Boo Collett hit 35 to 40 home runs every year. So, and then Henriks and Echeverry and Ketchin, you know, maybe 21, 22 home runs behind the plate, you know, in a platoon situation. So we had a nice ball club. So it was all you need to do is figure out how to stay healthy. And if you, and that's kind of what my mission statement was every year. How can I just get out on the mound? And the, the freaky thing is I didn't know this, but I have my left legs almost about a half an inch shorter than my right. And, it, you know, I start pitching and then all of a sudden, I, you know, I, my back's killing me. And until I went to see Russell Wright, who was a team doctor with the Detroit Tigers, who was the AAU uh, weight, uh, weight uh, osteopath, um, you know, and he cured me in about 10 days, but I missed 52 days that season. Or I certainly would have won 20 games that year. 
um, you know, I came back and you talked about the no hitter. I, you know, back then we didn't have rehab assignments. I, I missed 52 days. I came back did six shutout innings against the twins. And the next game was a no hitter against the A's. You know, they counted the pitches, but they never really told you <laughs> that, that you had to right. stop pitching. You know, they just kind of know how many you're pitching. As a matter of fact, when, when we got Quare, the first game of 69, we're playing the twins, you know, and they got, I mean, they got Carew and they got Killebrew and they got Oliva, Bob Allison. They had a nice ball club and, you know, Mike was left-handed and, you know, he's from Cuba and we're always thought, well, he doesn't pitch well. Well, in you know, in cold weather, well, he's got a five to two lead and Cesar Tovar leads off the ninth inning of a single. And I walked down because I'm keeping the chart pitching the next day. And I said, didn't call him Earl. I said, Mr. Weaver, I said, that's his 135th pitch. He said, son, why don't you get down the other, get your down the other end of the dugout. I'll let you know when he's tired. Uh, Carew had a skidding double played, you know, four to six to three. Oliva flew out to center field and the game's over and it's freezing. And I just want to go in and sit in the whirlpool because, you know, back then you didn't have thermal clothes. You had everything on in your locker, and it was like, you know, 38 degrees or something. So, And Weaver's waiting for me, and Earl's down the other end of the dugout. So finally, I have to, the only way I can get in the locker room is to walk by him. And he goes, Dad, you know what I think about those pitch counts? And that's that was Earl Weaver, you know? He was, he, you know, he he's one of the first guys that actually used a radar gun, but you know, we got all the analytics and we got the radar guns, but you know as well as anybody, sometimes you got to trust your eyes. And Earl was one of those type of guys. Yeah, without a doubt. It's, it's, it, it, there's not rules, the same rules for everybody. There's an eye, there's a, <laughs> exactly. there's a, there's a look in the eyes. There's a, uh, I, I don't, I, I can't even explain it to people. It's, it's, that's why I think, you well, know, well, you had what, Freddie Garcia did, did, was Randy Johnson ever one of your teammates? Randy Johnson, yeah, I played my first tenure in in Seattle. Randy was uh, most dominant pitcher I've ever played behind, and I had the you know I had the pleasure of playing behind that uh, that Brave staff for for a year in '99 when I was with Atlanta. But the most dominant def- or the most dominant pitcher I ever played behind defensively was Randy Johnson before I got traded to the Reds in the early '90s. It's when he was on, it was like You've got no chance, and and I'd never seen that up to that point. Yeah, it was kind of interesting. I mean, I remember reading a, a Sports Illustrated article, you know, when he was starting to become, you know, the guy that was on his way to the Hall of Fame and 300 wins. So, Randy, why don't you pitch inside? Oh, I might kill somebody. Well, that's the guy. <laughs> Can you imagine being a hitter reading that? Well, yeah. you know. I'd, well, he, he, I'd, he I'd went from Randy went, all over the place, Jim, because I didn't do very well off him when, when he was not my teammate. And uh, he started he started doing stuff when he got late. And I mean, he, he people think it was this big, you know, six ten lefty throwing a hundred. No, Randy became a pitcher. I mean, he was throwing me two two seamers, starting them off at my at my back hip and bringing them back on the inside of the plate. And I'm going, what is this? So Randy, I mean, when he had it working, he had all the pitch. He was throwing a hundred. But he had that slider he'd drop on you 2-0 with no situation with a 6-0 lead. You'd almost look at him like, really, we're going to do that right now? I understand in a close game, but he was pretty impressive those years I got to play. Well, that, play that was Nolan, right? You know, yeah. I mean, Andy Etcheberry left us and went up to catch Nolan in Anaheim, and he goes 3-0, and tells me to sit on the corner. He's throwing 102, you know. He even walked me on a 3-2 curveball. 
now that's kind of a wasted walk, but I'm going, yeah. I'm not that I, you know, so, cause you know, it's funny you go back to, you know, you were talking about Kofax when we played him in the world series, you know, Sandy was, I don't know, he was 27 and five or 25 and seven with a ERA of under two runs a game. So I'm kneeling on deck. And again, I mean, he didn't lose. He, I mean, I ended up winning the game, but you know, Willie Davis cost him to lose the game because he didn't had good enough any runs going into the fifth, and then we got four unearned runs. But Andy Etcherbaron had kind of kind of wrapped his bat a little bit. So you know, Rick Dan was our hitting instructor. You know, when I was broadcasting in Baltimore, and then he went to the Yankees. I'd say, so like when Eric Davis kind of has all that stuff with his bat and all that. I said, is that a you know is that a uh, is that a trigger or is it a hitch? He said, well, if you it's a hitch if you can't hit, and it's a trigger if you can't. So I'm waiting, I'm kneeling down in Dodger Stadium, and Sandy throws this high-riding fastball, and it was so easy. I mean, it, you know, it just, it just, John Roseboro would catch in, and Etch kind of hitched the back, strike one, another one, strike two, three high fastballs, and Etch never could get the bat off his, off his shoulder. So I'm walking up to home plate, and I said, radio balls. He said, what? I said, you, you could hear him, but you couldn't see him. So, you know, again, I won my first game in the big leagues with a home run. And, uh, you know, I mean, after we all won 20 games in 71, I got seven game-winning hits the last year. just happened every time I got a hit because I pitched well. It seemed to win a game in 72. So I figured, okay, I'll, you know, this is Kopech. So he throws me this, you know, this just, I mean, it just comes out of his hand, but it explodes. It's like it started in the lobby and ended up on the third floor. It's just this. You know, and again, I guess the illusion now when you do all the analytics is the ball doesn't really rise. It just doesn't, it doesn't go down, you know, so it has, I actually think it does go up because I could make the ball backspin the ball pretty well. So anyway, I said, okay. And then, you know, the ball's right by me. So then I go, okay, I'll look fastball. I better, you know, choke up a little bit. I used to use Frank Robinson's bat. Well, the next pitch comes right out of the same net, And now they call it the tunnel and it's, right. it's on the ground. It's, it's a curveball but they look exactly the same. And Roseboro catches on the ground. And I said, Oh, I am screwed. I have no chance. <laughs> so, you know, that was Sandy Koufax. And that was his last game. Five no hitters, you know, and made it look easy, you know, and well, at least once he got it together, you know, this was a guy that when he came up with the Dodgers, they wouldn't even let him throw in front of people. I mean, I walked 130 and 129 innings at a ball. And then when I went to that instructional league in 64, you know, you, you know, you, I'm sure, you know, your swing changed or you, you know, figured out what you had to do or whatever. And Bamberger made me balance and learn to throw the ball down and away to a right-hander. Cause he said, if you can do that, you can, you, know, you got to load, you got to extend. Now you have to do what they talk about perceived velocity, how far you release the ball, you know, all the little things that we kind of knew, but you know, they, they just had a little, uh, I guess a little different vernacular back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. 70, you go 20 and 10. You're an all-star for the first time. Second World Series. Sweeter than the first one or same? Well, you know, I, I don't know why. You know, we're, we're going over the Reds hitters. and The first seven guys are high fastball hitters, and I raised my hand because we had Mike Coyer who won 24 games, and David and I, I think won 23 or 24. They were left-handers, and most most of the guys other than Bobby Tolan were, you know, I mean, you had Johnny Bench with, what, 45 home runs. You had Tony Perez, Hall of Famer, Bench too, 40, 40 home runs. You know, you you had Lee May hit 37 or 35 home runs, you know, who eventually would play with us. And 
uh, I raised my hand. So, so I said, wait a minute, they're all high fastball hitters. Why am I pitching? They said, not your high fastball. So I pitched game one. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, it's funny how everybody said, wow, you know, you're 20 and you're, how'd you ever beat Koufax? Well, I didn't beat Koufax. Willie Davis beat Koufax. I just pitched well that day. Well, this day in 1970 at, at Riverfront, and, you know, my first All-Star game, you know, I pitched three innings. Tom Seaver pitched three innings. We both shut him out. And that was the play where Ray Ross, uh, Ray Fossey, who just passed away, one of the great guys, you know, bench kind of ran him over at home plate, and it kind of changed his career. So we had been in Riverfront, so I kind of knew the ballpark a little bit. But they had a nice team. And, you know, they had the controversial play, the tag play at home plate with Bernie Carbo. Um, you know, Lee May, uh, the first time up, I, uh, I throw him a fastball out over the plate. He hits a single to the left. And I figured, okay, that didn't work. I throw him a curveball. He hits a two-run home run. So we're down 3 nothing, And then Brooks and Boog and Elrod Hendricks hit home runs. And, you know, I think I pitched seven and two-thirds or eight and a third or something like that. And we went four to three. You know, the, the Reds, this wasn't the big red machine with Joe Morgan. You know, they didn't have the – not that Bobby Tolan couldn't play a little bit because he could. Or Bernie Carbo, who's I think, been rookie of the year. But, you know, they would be a much better ball club when Joe Morgan would come over and win his two MVPs. And they would be – they'd beat the Red Sox in 75 and the Yankees in 76. So, you know, but they were a good ball club. But we had better pitching to probably – you know, it's funny how when you get into a World Series, Elrod Hendrick was – Left-handed hitter, hit every ball to right field. He hit a ball right over the third base back. Only time he did it in his career. So World Series are funny. You know, you 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 know you'll see. You know, you think if when you look at, you know, you look at uh, you know the Braves. You know, you, you got Freeman and you got Riley and you got Swanson and you got all these and all that. There may be somebody else that ends up being the most valuable player. You know, we've seen it year in and year out. You know when. Gene Tennis came out of nowhere, I think, in 72, when the, you know, when the A's started their three-year run or whatever. So there will always be somebody that gets a chance to play in a World Series and has a great series. And then Rick Dempsey was our MVP in 1983. And Depper, one of the great guys, he, you know, he said, listen, I've never had a good day. I've never had a good week or a month. And after he told us that two months later, he's MVP in the 83 World Series. So kind of looking forward to the series starting tomorrow. Yeah, I have to because it's, you know, if, if you go into this postseason and ask me, everything I said was wrong. I can only tell you what's on paper and what I see. You know, I said for the beginning, Dodgers are the best team in baseball. Well, a few things happened to them. Kershaw went by the wayside. They lost their third baseman. Um, and they, you know, Bellinger had to end up having a great series. But but the way the pitching, it, it didn't line up right for him. You know, they were starting some openers, doing some things that made me kind of go, What's going on here? You know, so uh, I don't know. Interesting. They missed. They mix. Uh, they were missing Muncie the whole time. Their first base. Yeah. Well, he's one of the you know great on base percentage, and they yeah. got to play different people and, and whatever. But I think also how you get to the World Series. You know the. But you know, I, I, I did six games that the Orioles. And the Orioles were not very good this year. I think I, did, I might have lost 112 games or whatever. But they they trumped us in in, in Baltimore. And, you know, they're 51 and 30 at home. That was their season record. The Orioles went down there and beat them three in a row. And, yeah. I mean, you know, it, you know, at what Minute Maid, I guess it is. And, uh, you know, they usually play very well there. So they have the home field advantage. Of course, the Braves, you know, they were, well, I think they went 44 and 28 the second half. 
you know, they came to Baltimore and won all three games, but they were close games. So it'll be kind of interesting. You know, I, I think, I actually think the Braves have better pitching, especially starters. I mean, you know, Charlie Morton's been around the block a few times, hasn't he? So, and Freed, you know, he'll started, yeah. Right. Freed's last out, he got hit a little bit, but he's he's been as nasty as anybody, especially from the left side. And then yeah, Ian he Kennedy. pitched against us in Baltimore, and it was one of the best games I saw pitched all year long. Yeah, I agree. It should be an interesting pretty, yeah. pretty evenly matched. I mean, Houston's offense, probably a better offense. I, I give the edge to starting pitch in Atlanta. But I, I don't know about you, but anytime you get to that final, that World Series, I'm going to go with the best pitching. I'll take the best starting pitching and take my chances. So if I were to make a prediction, I don't know. I got to throw Atlanta out there. But <laughs> but like I said, I've been wrong this whole time. I didn't have Atlanta or Houston anywhere close to the World Series. And here we sit. Yeah. Well, but that's what makes the game so so great. I mean, you know, we weren't supposed to lose to the Mets, you know, the amazing Mets in 69. We won the first game. You know, uh, Kuzman beat Mike Cuellar in game two, I think two to one. We hit rockets all over the ballpark. Gentry, you know, I was supposed to be better than Gentry. You know, I gave up, what, three runs? You know, I mean, you know, everybody used to say, well, you, you moved outfielders. Well, I said, you know where it started? To the 69 World Series when – the pitcher, Gary Gentry, had a pop fly to right center field. And Paul Blair, went on his way to eight gold gloves, was playing in the pole. That's when I started turning around to see where my outfielders were playing, you know, because it's a ball that probably should have been caught. And, you know, he was, you know, if he's playing where he, he you know, I should have moved him. And that's when, you know, so I turned around and did that. But you just never, ever know. Of course, the Mets, you know, talk about pitching. Nolan Ryan, he came, he, he came out of the bullpen. Uh, you know, for the Mets. He wasn't even a starting pitcher on the 69 Mets. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting. And, uh, you know, of course, the Dodgers, but they had all kinds of injuries. But how, you know, how how about what Metzer comes in and, you know, I mean, they, they get second and third. It's four to two. You know, they got a Three chance to tie the ball game up. They got their guys up and he comes in. And, you know, and, and not only that, Mookie Betts, you know, I mean, I haven't seen him this year because, you know, I do American League Baseball. But I saw him his first year. He came up late in the year. And in Baltimore, Camden Yards, you know, because it's a friendly hitting ballpark. Somebody gets, you know, 2-0, and 2-1. and one, and, and I see this incredible, for not a big guy, incredible bat speed. You know, and then the next year he had nine home runs against us and all that. But he threw the ball right by him. And that doesn't happen very often. Yep. All right, we get to 71, and this is where it starts. And, and we just recently had a lefty on the on the show, Steve Carlton. And I was going through his numbers, and it's pretty darn impressive. But then I was going through your numbers, getting ready for this, for this podcast, and I thought, that's one of the best runs ever. I mean, from 71 to 78, you only win 20 games seven times. You had a hiccup in 74, Jimmy. I don't know what you were doing that year. You, you had a 3-2, but you lost more than you won. Uh, but you want, you went 20 and nine, 21 and 10. You win three Cy Young, 73, 75, 76 all-star games sprinkled. I mean, that's, that's one of the best runs of all time. How, how was that, that part of your career and, and the accolades coming along with it? It had to be a pretty awesome run for you. Well, it was. And, you know, of course, after you tear your rotator cuff and you think your career's over at age 22. Um, but like I said, I'm playing for the right team. You know, people always said, well, why didn't you play out your option? You know, 76 was when, you know, Reggie came over uh, right after spring training. We, we traded Mike Torres, who won 20 games for us. And, 
and Don Baylor, who would, and, and Earl Weaver said, you know, Baylor's going to be an MVP, and he was. Of course, he didn't do it. We traded him to Oakland, and then he got traded to the Angels and was the MVP in 79. And we got Kenny Holtzman and, and, and Reggie, and, you know, Reggie, you know, held out, and so it, we didn't win that year, but we had really good clubs. And, uh, you know, and again, I, I don't know, you know, not only on our club, because, you know, when, when I was there in 71, we win. We have we have four twenty game winners. Pat Dobson came over from the Padres, and you know he was I think won thirteen games with them. And it comes to a better club, you know I won twenty. I'm the one. It was the last of the four twenty game winners on the last day of the year, and you know I mean in Cleveland, I mean I had the lowest ERA, but you know run support. A lot of those things, you know back then, you know they we had the Elias and things like that, but you didn't have the numbers that you have now. I mean it. it a lot of a lot of pitchers pitch well, and you know, and they they don't get a lot of run support. You mentioned '74. I did. He hurt my elbow that year, so I missed some time. Came back, lost one nothing in the playoffs. So it was one of those years where I pitched well, I lost. When I pitched well, I lost. And then the next year, '75, I had my best year ever. You know, my arm. You know, just had nerve inflammation that went away. You know, pitched ten shutouts, twenty five complete games, three hundred and twenty three innings just in case if everybody thought my career was over. I don't think it was because it's 76. You <laughs> no. win the Cy Young again. It's 76. You win the Cy Young again. That's three in, in one, two, three in the last four years. And then, uh, and then in 77, you know, Sparky Wild, you know, was with the Yankees. They would go on to win the world championship. So I finished second to him, you know, but it was, you know, relating is a little bit different back then, you know, whether you're talking Raleigh fingers or, you know, um, Goose Gossett say, you know, we we would play the Yankees when Goose was on the uh, the Yankees and the Yankees, and we'd say, if we don't have a lead by the seventh, it's all over, you know. Yeah. And that's the kind of and Sparky was that way, you know, master of throwing the backdoor slider, you know, the back foot slider, the right handed hitters, and you know they had a great year, and you know, yet like I said, they would they would go go on to win two back to back World Championships after going to the World Series and getting beat by the Reds in '76, so. Yeah, but but Brett, you know, I mean, I, I to me, what fueled me was, you know, I guess if I had my iPhone or my iPad now, I mean, you know, you'd be checking the league leaders and whatever, and you know, when it all it all started when I was nineteen, Roman was one of the greatest pitchers ever, and Robin Roberts, he, he kind of, you know, the, you you want to be as you don't want to be any even when we had twenty game winners in Baltimore, you don't want to be better than them, you want to be as good. And if they have standards, which they did, as high as they are, you're going to have a nice career. And that's what I, 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 you know, Cy Youngs are great. But to me, being in the top three or four pitchers every year, that's what you, you know, that's that's what I tried to strive for. And, you know, when you play for good teams, it makes it a lot easier. I, all I had to do is figure out, you know, move my outfielders occasionally and figure out a, a way to stay healthy. End of the 70s, you end up... 186 wins, most winningest pitcher in the 70s. And things were starting to change union-wise uh, at that time in baseball. Were you involved in union? And and how was that changing? Um, not really, you know. I mean, I always, no. I mean, I certainly went to the meetings and, you know, all that. We, you know, we had the, the strike in 81, um, yep. which was 52 days. It's, yeah, and that was the middle of the season. It's, you know, it's, it's that's, kind of, it's, yeah, it, it's, yeah, you know, and, and I don't know, maybe because I played for a small market team. You know, Baltimore, until Edward Bennett Williams, the famed attorney who owned part of the Redskins, he bought the Orioles in 1979. 
we never, you know, 109, 108, 101 wins, 69, 70, 71. I don't think we ever drew over a million two in, in attendance. It's just not that, you know, Memorial Stadium was an older ball, ballpark. We shared it with the Colts, you know, the original Colts. Um, they did, you know, you still had, well, at least for a while, you, you know, the, you had the, the Senators over in Washington, and then they would eventually move. But when Edward Ben Williams bought the ball club, he, uh, you know, the Senators were gone, and we drew over $2 million, I think, in 2001 because he actually went to Washington, which, where he was had his, you know, Williams and Connolly was one of the famed uh, uh, law offices. And again, he owned part of the Redskins, and we actually kind of, you know, 5.5 million people in the Metroplex. All of a sudden, the attendance got a lot good. Plus, we had a really good year. We would, you know, win in in '79. We would lose to the Pirates in seven games, but you know, a lot of exciting games. We had, you know, Eddie Murray was there. You know, Cal was Cal, Cal Jr. was two years away. He had signed with the Orioles, so a lot of dramatic wins. And then, of course, you know, we we had a we played very well in the World Series as we did in '71. But the Pirates had had some pretty good players. Clemente in '71, one of the great toughest outs that I ever faced. And then, you know, Will Stargell, who would end up in the Hall of Fame, he did not play well in 71. And then in 79, I think he might have been the MVP because he was a totally different guy. You know, and you know as well as anybody, you can go through a, you know, seven-game over 10-day period where you don't see the ball well or you try too hard or you hit in tough luck. And then, you know, the next year or five years later or whatever, everything changes. Yeah, Freddie Freeman just went through it. Oh, exactly. Uh, 16 and 10 and 80. You get to 83. Third uh, ends up being your third World Series ring. You beat the Phillies. So you got the old, you got some of the old uh, Reds on that team. I think Morgan and Perez are on that team. You got Schmitty, lefty. Uh, You end up winning. But like you said, it, it was a new, it was kind of a changing of the guard. You went from the great players you mentioned, the, the Robinsons, uh, in the Oriole, in the early Oriole days, now you've got Eddie Murray, you got Cal Ripken. Uh, how was that '83 season? Well, it was. You know, I mean, I didn't really. I, I hurt my back early in the year, and um, so I was. I was kind of. You know, I mean, I was more of an observer. You know, it's interesting because people said, "Well, you know, you went to the minor leagues that year to you know do your rehab," and I said, "Well, of course, because I wanted to." you know, to show him I could still pitch so I could maybe possibly be on the postseason roster. You know, we, I mean, Scotty McGregor, we had traded for Scotty in 70, you know, 76, part of the, uh, you know, the uh, Ken Holtzman trade to the Yankees. And we got Tiffy Martinez, who's a terrific left-hander. So I just wanted to be around, you know, uh, Eddie Murray was on his way to, you know, having 3,000 hits or more than 500 home runs. So he was a marvelous player. Cal had been rookie of the year in 82, so 83, he ended up winning the MVP, you know, even though you could have given it to Eddie, I mean, because Eddie, you know, their years were very similar. Um, but we just had a good ball club. Mike Bartaker, I think, won 20 games for us. But I just, you know, I was just trying to make sure that I was on the roster. I actually pinch ran in the in the division series. Um, you know, I actually ran from second base. And then, you know, I, I, I won, what, I I won on my 38th birthday. I became the only guy to ever win a World Series game in three different decades. And the only reason that happened is a ball went, a routine ground ball went through Yvonne De Azusa's legs. 
at shortstop. And every time I see Mike, you know, it's funny you mentioned Mike Schmidt. You know, we both end up in the Hall of Fame, but every time I see him, he goes, it's amazing how much lift you had on that 90-mile-per-hour fastball. And I said, you sure it was 90? Because <laughs> I hadn't really pitched in about two weeks. And I can't, you know, because, again, I mean, I got called up. I was, you know, kind of interesting, Brett. You know, when, you know, the first five World Series, I was a pretty active part in all of them. This one, I'm sitting out past the plexiglass in left center field and, you know, in Philadelphia, and I'm going, you know, there are a lot of people that are paying a lot of money sitting a lot farther away from home plate than I am. And then yeah, I think the World Series share was like $55,000. So, but it was a, you know, it was a terrific year. You know, they, they called them the Wee's teams because they, you know, Joe Morgan played on that team. Pete Rose played on that team. You know, Mike Schmidt was much younger, Tony Perez. So they had a lot of older players. And, you know, once again, you know, it's funny when I look back. So, so 69, arguably we were a better team than the Mets, even though they had a good ball club. We, we, you know, 66, the Dodgers should have won. We won. 69, we should have won. The Mets won. 70, we probably should have won. We did win. You know, even against the Pirates, they won. 79, even against the Pirates, they won. And then 83, we were probably better than the Phillies, and we won. So, But you never, ever know in World Series. You know, those that, 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 it, it happened so quickly. The Mets series... You know, even in 69, I was doing the baseball assistance team. I used to be on the board. We used to have a big dinner in New York, and Gary Thorne's MC, and, he, and I'm up there with Tom Seaver, and he, Tom, you know, he says, Gary says, well, hey, what happens when they play the, uh, you know, the uh, uh, the highlights of the 69 World Series? I said, I either walk out of the room or I turn the TV off. And Tom, Tom goes, Jim, it's 30 years ago. you get, got to gotta get over it. Well, you don't ever get over it. But what you do remember is that when you get into – especially a division series, three out of five, but even, you know, the championship series or a world series, those games can go really quickly. And it all it takes is a play here or a hit there, or, you know, maybe a call here or whatever. I mean, you go back to the Met game, you know, the Met series, uh, you know, JC Martin was out the baseline. They didn't call it. The ball went to the dugout off of Cleon Jones, foot. they gave him another bat. We might've won that game. You can go back and rehash a lot of stuff, but, the one thing it is, you know, the the one thing, even if you lose the World Series, Brett, you were there. <laughs> it's, you know, right. I mean, you go to spring training trying to get to the World Series and can't win them all. I mean, I found that out very, very handedly. 84 ends up being your last year. You retire from baseball. Unbelievable career. Uh, I'm going to do a quick rapid fire with you. We'll go Earl Weaver. Just sentence or two what comes to mind. Nickname in the minors was Mickey Rooney because he was so short. <laughs> uh, love hate, you know. I mean, he never shook my hand, but he gave me the ball every fourth day because he trusted me. Eddie Murray, worst batting practice hitter in the history of the game of baseball. Rod Carew. But, <laughs> right, oh, okay. You're not done. Go ahead. No, well, no, no, no. Uh, until the game started, and then the game started. Yeah, yeah. And he was that's Eddie the caveat was decent. There. He did all yeah. right. Rod yeah. Carew, <laughs> uh, best curveball I ever threw in instructional league in 1964. Probably hit 400 off me lifetime, but never got big hits. Cal Ripken, um, great athlete. Stubborn, you don't play twenty six hundred and thirty one straight games or whatever it was without being stubborn. Stubborn, um, and 
adaptive. Boog pal. Um, <laughs> Boog, God, I just talked to him. Um, underrated, you know, most valuable player in 70, second in 69, and another great athlete because when we played the first day game in the Astrodome, Boog played left field and he realized you couldn't see fly balls. He played left field with a batting helmet on the day we won 12 to 10 because we hit more fly balls than anybody than the Astros. <laughs> all right now you get into broadcasting and and this is a question i have for you i know you start your your broadcasting career in, in 85 but you did 78 80 81 82 you were broadcasting while you were still a player what were the what were the challenges for you doing that or was it a challenge well it's always a challenge because you don't know how you know it, it's not like winning 20 games because if you win 20 games you could <laughs> kind of pretty much say anything you want. At least I could with Earl Weaver, but uh, no, you know, it, it, you know, pitching, hitting, um, you know, playing golf, you know, what, what was the number on your scorecard? They're pretty black and white. Broadcasting's gray, but um, uh, Reggie Jackson's agent, Matt Barola called me and he said, ABC is looking for a broadcaster because you've got to understand 78 was the one game playoff, the Bucky Dent home run up in Boston, you know, Gidry against Mike Torres. And so they told me to watch the game. If the Yankees win, Reggie will play. If the Red Sox win, you'll stay home and watch it on TV and play golf and, you know, break your leaves. Um, so I watched the game and, uh, you know, I, uh, it was what two nothing Red Sox. And I had my suitcase out. I had it half packed and Bucky Dan hits a three run home run, three to two, four to two, five to two, five to three, five to four, and then Goose Gossage uh, comes in and gets, I think, Gostromsky and maybe Jim Rice out, Dwight Evans in the ninth inning, and I go off to Kansas City to, to broadcast with Howard Cosell and Keith Jackson. And Keith says, well, you either know by the fourth inning that you have it or you don't. And I go, well, I'm in the fourth inning, and I'm going, do I have it or don't? Or I don't? And then Howard Cosell would um, – we were walking through Alameda Plaza in downtown Kansas City, and he goes, Jimbo, are you nervous? I said, no, Howard, I'm a little apprehensive. He said, just remember one thing, man, everybody that ever works with me becomes a star. So that's that was my first gig in 78. You know, it was a good series against Kansas City, against the Yankees, and then, you know, 80, I did, I did the playoffs with Billy Martin and Al Michaels, and American League playoffs in 81 and did the World Series with Keith and Howard and then Al and Howard uh, in games three, four, and five at Dodger Stadium. Kind of a, a PS to that, Brad, is that, if, you know, I was the youngest guy to ever pitch a shutout in the World Series. If Fernando Valenzuela pitches a shutout in game three out in L.A., he would have beat my record. Really? But he gave up. he gave up a couple of runs in the first inning, so. I enjoyed that game. No, <laughs> Fernando, what a, what a, yeah, I mean, you know, he actually pitched with the Orioles. What a great guy. But yeah, if he pitches a shutout that game, and that's what he was doing. I mean, he was, you know, this is 1981. He, you know, he's one of the reasons the Dodgers got to the World Series against the Yankees. What was Fernando? Oh, so, yeah. So that, yeah. And then 85, I started doing them uh, with Al Michaels and Tim McCarver. I just talked to Timmy the other day. Larry Christensen, uh, he went down to have dinner with him. So I think Timmy, Timmy's either 80 or 81. 
But, I, you know, we don't put numbers when you get to be older. So, But uh, he, Larry sent me a picture today, and he looked, Jimmy looked great. But we talked. Yeah, I mean, we hit- you know, when you – when you play, you when you get to do the best games with really good broadcasters, and you know Tim played four decades, and Al Michaels, you know, started what in Hawaii, went to the Reds, went to San Francisco, and you know I had a chance to do what the '85, '87, the Earthquake World Series, you know, which then we did '95 together. So, yeah, we had a lot of really great moments. Yeah, you've 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 done it with the best of them, Michaels and McCarver, and and uh, well, I favorite really wine. I love I love Gary Thorne. You work with Gary Thorne a lot. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he, you know Gary's one of the greatest. We, well, it's funny we worked for it seemed like forever, you know. And then of course you know we had some you know the Orioles. What I don't know if he was there then, but we did fourteen straight losing years, and then Buck Showalter came over in two thousand and eleven, and then the fortunes. Changed through 2000, what 16? That wild card game up in up in um, uh, Toronto. But yeah, Gary. Yeah, Gary, you know Gary's great to work with. Great voice. You know, infectious sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. And well, and you know, you 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 want to you, you people turn on home broadcast to see their teams win. So I could just imagine what job they thought I did when, when we had 13, 14 consecutive losing seasons. But again, you know, I enjoy broadcasting because, um, you know, I mean, you know, some of my best friends, you know, when I was playing, I mean, you know, we had Chuck Thompson who's in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we had a lot of really good broadcasters. And when I grew up in New York, Mel Allen, and, you know, and when I moved out to California, I always do when I saw Vinny before he, we were in Dodger Stadium the year he retired, I said, you know, I used to fall asleep with you, Vinny. I said, don't take it personally. <laughs> Because beautiful night for Dodger baseball brought to you by Farmer John. And he, he'll come up with stuff, Jimmy, when you're pitching or when I'm playing. I'd, I'd be up in between innings, uh, as a lot of us hitters like to do, go up and watch video or whatever. He'd be telling a story about when I was 12. And I'm like, how did he, where did he get that information from? Back then, there was Well, wasn't- there's actually a site, Brett, you know, because yeah. the, you know, the Mariners in Nitro, I mean, you, you know, you had a chance to play with Nitro. What a marvelous player. He's going to be the first Asian in the what, Hall of Famer whenever he's eligible, but is he still playing? No, I'm just kidding. I know no, he's going to play forever, but he's unbelievable. He's still hitting BP with the Mariners. I said, Ichiro, go uh, home. But, you know, I, I, we, we had this site where they give us, um, you know, information. So, you know, I was just looking through, I didn't use it on the air because I was doing color and not play by play, but it, it basically said Ichiro got married after the season. He, he couldn't do it in Seattle. Um, couldn't do it in Tokyo did it in Los Angeles. So, you know, they, the, the Mariners leave and make, they go back out West. They're playing the Dodgers and Vinny's doing the game. And all of a sudden I hear, you know, I'm kind of getting something in the kitchen cause it's late at night. Cause I'm in Baltimore and they're out on the West coast and each couldn't get married in Seattle. Got married in Los Angeles and it's Vinny, the same site. And I'm going, well, there you go. So, it's I so, but you know what? The last year that he broadcast, we're at Dodger Stadium, and people are taking pictures. And I think he's eighty-eight or eighty-nine, and, I'm, and and nothing ever changed. I mean, it sounded like the same guy. And I, so the third day, I said, Vinny, how are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, you know, because it was his as he deserved farewell tour and all that. But you know, he was, you know, and and it's funny. I went back and. You know, you, you, you'd be going through Google looking at stuff, and then you see Koufax's perfect game or, you know, 
no hitter or whatever. And then you go back and listen to it. And, you know, I mean, I remember when I went to Arizona state, you know, when they had a good basketball program back in the sixties, when you get a good radio announcer, it may almost be more exciting because they paint this John Miller type of guy where they paint this picture and they, you know, they, they're, they're your eyes. And, you know, Vinny, Vinny could do that. You know, he, he didn't need the visual medium of television because he was that good. 91. This caught me off guard. You make a mini, a mini comeback at that yeah, time in your life. What's going through your mind? Now I did it. I walked away from the game in 06. I came back uh, in 08 with the Washington Nationals. I signed. I ended up going to the minor leagues for a couple weeks to see if I wanted to do it. I ended up scrapping it. But for me, it was I just wanted some closure, and I got some closure. I was old. My knees weren't working. I was playing on a horrible team, and I said, pass, I'll go off. But I could go home, and and I was okay with it. Why would you do it in, in 1991? Well, you know, it had been seven years since I had retired, I'd gotten in the Hall of Fame. Nobody had done that. But it really, I don't want to throw ESPN under the bus, but ESPN did baseball for the first time in 1990. And I signed a one-year deal and a three-year extension. And, you know, well, being well-paid. And so they did not have exclusivity. In other words, they were, you know, like when, we, when I used to work at ABC, we did Monday night baseball nobody else was doing Monday night baseball so if you wanted to watch baseball the ABC that was the only game so but now ESPN they thought they're going to get big ratings they didn't so they said listen we want you to work for you because you get nominated for an Emmy but you know we want we want you you know we don't we, we can't give you the pay raises that we we're told you we were going to give you and and you know you, you, Brett you had it it's, it's harder to do one game than it is to do a series. And, you know, we don't have, you know, back then you didn't have the luxury of, of um, you know, if you had a wraparound series, you know, where it goes through Monday and you're doing Monday night, well, that's easy because you're there Sunday. But most of the time you'd fly in Sunday night, the team would be on the road, they're coming home. You know, the only way to see them is, you know, to hopefully get your satellite dish to work and you're sitting there. And I did it all summer. You know, you watch three and a half, four hour games. You can't see the highlights like you can now on the MLB at bat app. Um, it was it was a lot of work. And then you'd go in and, you know, they, they wanted you to if it was over an hour, then you could go first class. Otherwise, it was coach. I'm six, four. I'm big. I have big feet, long legs. It was work. And then, you know, they don't want you to say RBIs. They want you to say RBI. So we had three RBI. And I, I said, well, you, don't you mean RSBI? You know, because runs are plural <laughs> if it's more than one. And, right. they, you know, because they just wanted to change the game. So it wasn't the most comfortable. I like working with Steve Zabriskie. I worked with uh, Bob Carpenter. I worked with Gary Thorne. You know, so, I mean, I was working with guys that I liked. But it was just hard to do it. And, uh, you know, they so I... They said, well, we'll give you the three-year deal, but less money. And I think, you know, I figured, you know what? I'll never be able to do it again. So I got back from I was doing something for a jockey because I did that for 19 years, you know, representing, you know, the underwear, doing appearances and stuff. I think it was up in Buffalo. And I got my stepson, and I went across the school and started throwing. It was like, you know, maybe December or early December. I had a glove, he had a glove, and I started playing catch. And I went down to Florida where I had a place. And I went to, uh, I went over to um, University of Miami and 
that's, you know, when I met this guy, Laser Colazzo, who was one of the pitching coaches, and he said, you know, for a guy that's going to get in the Hall of Fame, you, I don't like your mechanics. And I said, Laser, I'm in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> and he goes, I'm already there, like buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so I just figured, you know what? And then I ended up hurting my hamstring, uh, you know, actually playing tennis. So I did the whole, you know, the, 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 the spring training, but I actually was warming up to pitch against the Red Sox and hurt my hamstring pop. So I pitched a couple of innings. And then I go, you know, I'm not going to be able to walk tomorrow, and I couldn't. So I went back to the booth. And, um, you know, and I did it with the Orioles because I had, you know, they wanted me to broadcast for them, and I've been doing that pretty much ever since. The jockey. It was too easy right out of the gate to ask you about the jockey. 19 years. Now, that's a, that's a lot of pressure. It's easy to well, do. I mean, the jockey's easy to do when you're 20. But as as time goes on, it's like, wow, I gotta I gotta get in these skivvies. I gotta be, you know, I'm gonna be yeah. pretty much new. Well, I, it's a little, that little I pressure did from to that shape. So I was 32 to 49. But you know, I don't. Well, I always kind of. I mean, I'd like to. I'd like to be active. So staying in shape and um, you know was just part of my lifestyle. So it, that wasn't hard. I mean, I, you know, I, I they. Uh, I used to do speaking for Sports Illustrated and, and um, they called me and they said, uh, you know, instead of a speech, you know, for IBM, how about going up and being part of a uh, you know, underwear shoot in New York? They had uh, Kenny Anderson, the quarterback. Uh, Pete Rose was supposed to be there and he ended up showing up, but they had to send a plane for him. I came up $35 round trip from Baltimore to New York and back on the Metroliner. Um and maybe I'd look better in my underwear than Pete. I don't really know. That's, <laughs> but um, so I did in 1977. They asked me back in 78. They didn't really use anybody in 1979. From, but they used to have a had had like nine players take away their uniforms, and and then they had guys from all different sports. So I got to got asked back. I did a couple of um, you know appearances for them. I showed up on time. I worked cheap. Uh, you know, and I think Bill Herman was the director of advertising. And what he did was most 75% of men's underwear is bought by women, at least back in the seventies and the eighties. So he got somebody that didn't threaten men because I was a baseball player. Cause they could, let's be honest, they could have gotten a lot of be- better looking male models than I was, you know, guys that spend their whole life, you know, doing that, but they got somebody that could do a little bit of both. So I did store appearances for him. He used to do maybe 20 plus stores, you know, did them in Seattle, did them in San Francisco, did them in New York, did them all over. And I, you know, that went on and it was a good gig. Sent my kids to college. I, you know, it was a good way to make a little bit of extra money. I didn't have to, to go to New York and, you know, be away from my family. And you know, I was raised in Baltimore. So it, it worked out well. 1990, uh, big year get that phone call. You know, I, whenever I have a hall of famer on the show, I always like to ask all the stories are, you know, the, the stories are similar, but they're all a little bit different. Take me through that day. Uh, when you get that phone call being, being enshrined in Cooperstown. Well, you get, you, you, for people that, you know, maybe don't have their next door neighbor as a hall of famer, the uh, baseball writers of America choose whether you're going in or not. So J- Jack Lang was the president and he called me, like the week before. And he said, you know, we're having a vote on Monday night. Um, I can't tell you that you're getting in, but you did win three Cy Youngs. You did win more games than anybody in the seventies. 
you know, you, uh, you know, eight and three in the post, you know, he went through my resume and he said, so, you know, where are you going to be, you know, between seven and eight o'clock? So I had a friend who, Hirsch Pacino, who owned a restaurant called Orchard Inn, and he said, you know, I want to want to have some people over, you know, so we can have the announcement there. And I said, Hirsch, I said, I may not get in, you know, Joe DiMaggio didn't get in, you know, the first time. There have been a lot of great players that didn't get in the first time. He said, well, we'll do it again next year. And I said, that can be expensive. Oh, so anyway... <laughs> They think that there's, a, I don't eat crabs because I think I'm allergic to them, but there's a, a crab house, uh, Obrecki's, and I'm at Hershey's Origin. They think I'm at Obrecki's. So the Hall of Fame is trying to call Obrecki's, and they're closed for the winter. So it's really gets to be 8.15, 8.20. My stepson says, Jim, it's not looking very good. I said, no, it isn't. Because they told me they called me between 7 and 8, and finally about, really 25 to nine, the phone rings and they said, it's a phone call. And Jack Lang says, uh, I got uh, bad news and good news. He said, the bad news is 33 writers didn't vote for you. The good news 411 did. So that's how I found out. Um, and you know, they flew up to New York to go on good morning America the next day. Uh, Joe Morgan was there. Of course, you know, to go in with Joe, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, sadly Joe and you know, one of 10 other hall of famers passed away in the last, year, year and a half. But Joe would always say, you know, thank God you uh, hit the induction. We, we got rained out and had to do it in the gymnasium on a Monday instead of on the Sunday. Uh, he said, thank God you spoke first. I said, Joe, you spoke first. He still thinks, thought to, to the day he died that I spoke first at the induction. But people, I, I, you know, it's funny how who you go in with, you know, it's, it's hard to go in with a bad class if you're going to the Hall of Fame. But people, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, the the Reds had some really good players, but they weren't the big red machine until they got Joe who won back-to-back MVPs because he could do everything. What a marvelous player. And, you know, great broadcaster, great guy. You know, you know the I don't know if you're familiar with the baseball assisted team dinner, but he was on the board for years at, where they raised money for indigent former players and Negro League players and umpires and all that. So we'd always he used to have a dinner in, every year in January in, in New York usually in clement weather, but 1,500 people would show up to raise money for it. So, and he was a big part of it, but what a special guy and what a, what a special player. Yeah, Joe was awesome. And weird story, when I was a kid, Pete got traded to the Phillies from the Reds, and, and that was the time him and my dad played together. And uh, I was just a little kid, and, and I didn't have metal spikes. You know, nowadays any kid can get those metal spikes. But you know, you know that sound that you want to click and hear it when you're when you're ten. But my foot wasn't big enough. So so the Reds came to town, and they said, "Hey, I'm going to talk to Joe Brett. He's got little feet. I want to see if I can get you a pair of spikes." <laughs> Joe Morgan gave me a pair of those spikes at an old veteran stadium. I could walk, you know, on the concrete, so you'd hear me click it. And that's all I wanted. And and I think Joe's shoes are probably two or three sizes too big, but I stuffed sanitaries in the bottom. And that was my first interaction with Joe. And, of course, you know, went on to have a lot of interactions with him afterwards. And, you know, he passed away this year. And, uh, yeah, what a what a great what a great player, what a great guy and unbelievable in this game. Part of one of the biggest teams of all time. Um, well, you know, I only threw, I only I'll leave you with this. I mean, I only threw. Let's see, I threw a leadoff home run in the 69 World Series to, to Tommy Agee. And then the only other one is the All-Star game in 77. They said, you know, be ready to pitch at 8.15. The game starts about a half an hour later. And I go 3-2 and two on Joe in Yankee Stadium. And I go, you know, if I walk him, 
because, you know, I mean, I don't have faced him, maybe faced him in spring training, but I walk him, he's going to steal second and steal third if he wants to, you know, and it's an all-star game, so he'll probably do that. And he hits a pop fly home run down the right field line. So, again, only two leadoff home runs in all the games that I started, you know, probably 500 and whatever, 75 of them, and Joe hit one of them. But he could play, yeah. He could beat you so many different ways, which is why he was Joe Morgan. I mean, he that's how you win MVPs. Well, Jim Palmer, I appreciate this very much. This was awesome. The the, the recollection you have is unbelievable, unbelievable. But what Brad, a great I made career! All this stuff up. You know, now they uh, now they're gonna if they at least I hope they don't politically fact check me because uh, you know it's kind of like you know you think like I always thought my first game was in 1965 in Fenway Park and snow flurries, so they can't fact check that because I don't know. I mean, maybe somebody was there, but I always thought that. Um, you know, I never threw a grand slam in what, you know, 3,900, almost 4,000 innings. Minor league, so, you did. Well, yeah, but that, you know, Weaver told me to throw it down the middle, and I had struck <laughs> this guy out, and it was happened to be Johnny Bench. So the second time around, you know, I, I walked the bases loaded with a 6 nothing lead, and Weaver said, just throw the ball down the middle. And I did, and he hit it. To, Johnny hit it towards Niagara Falls because we were playing playing in Niagara Falls. Last time we saw the mist of the falls when the ball disappeared into the falls. But it's it's kind of amazing how, you know, you you just, you know, the, 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 you, you know, I thought, again, like I said, I thought that I, I, I ended up striking out Tony Canegadero with the bases loaded. But I thought I came in with the bases loaded, but I actually walked Carl Yastrzemski to get to Tony Canigliaro, which most guys would not suggest to do at age 19. And he swung it too high. So I could have gotten the grand slam out of the way to the second hitter I ever faced in the big leagues. But again, you know, now you can go on retro sheet and you can go back and look at pretty much, you know, any box score from the day you played, or you can go look at Ted Williams the day that they told him, well, you know, if you don't play today, you'll hit 399.6. And he goes, no. And then what he, he went, what, five for eight or six for eight or whatever he did. So you can go back and look at that day. It's it's marvelous. But again, you just can't make things up as, as much as you used to be able to. Jim Palmer, thanks a lot. Uh, what we do each and every time here on the Boone Podcast is we bring back in Dan, the voice of the podcast, to ask a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, how are you? We're well. <laughs> All right, Jim. This one comes from Marty in Baltimore, and he wants to know this. Jim, talk about the history of the O's and the tradition of the team. Well, you know, the history is they came from St. Louis in 54. You know, most people think that I, at my age, I was there, but I wasn't. I didn't get there until 65. Um, you know, the, well, the, the tradition was they were they almost won in 60. Yankees were better. They almost won in 64. 65, as I mentioned earlier, we won 94 games, but the Twins won 102. The fortunes of the franchise really kind of turned when Frank Robinson came. You know, not only was he a marvelous player, but he played the game about as hard as you could play him. So, again, we were a good club. We became a great club. We only won three more games, but won a World Series. And then again, you know, so it was that. But I, I mean, I've always thought that the interaction, you know, the history and tradition of is being tested now with the pandemic and whatever, uh, you know, in Baltimore is that uh, we've always had a great connection, whether we drew a million two or, you know, almost four million like we did when Camden Yards was open. 
when they had some of the best clubs is that you always had a great connection between the fans and the uh, and the team. So hopefully with the rebuild or whatever you want to call it, um, you know, they're going to get some, some of their high draft choices coming to the big leagues next year. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll be more positive, but the, the, the problem now is they do play in one of the tougher divisions of baseball in the American League East. Jim Palmer, thank you so much for coming on the Brett Boob podcast, sir. We appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. Mailbag. Hi, right, Brett. You know that sound, don't you? <laughs> yeah, Dan, it's mailbag time. Mailbag time. All right, Brett, this one comes from Jim in Cincinnati. Brett, what was your pregame meal routine when you played? Um, it, it varied younger player, whatever, I, I, whatever was in the clubhouse as later in my career, we started to have chefs and, and there was more food catered and I could order what I wanted. Um, later on my career, I'd like to eat before the game. Usually in, in a big league clubhouse, the protocol is you get whatever you want during the day. And then after the game, there's a big spread and everybody eats dinner. Well, at that stage of my life I, I didn't want to eat after the game because it was too late so i'd eat before so i'd order their chicken breast some some rice and some steamed vegetables and i would eat that before every game at home on the road i i didn't have the chef there so i kind of had to makeshift whatever they had but that was pretty much my routine but early in my career uh, i didn't think about what i ate when i ate i just if i was hungry i ate but as i got old a little more regimented uh i started having a little bit more of a program all right. Well, that was the wrong button. I think it was the right. All right, Brett. Question number two comes from Patty in St. Louis. Brett, some people would call you the pioneer of the bat flip. Tell us about your flip and why yours may have been the pioneer. I don't necessarily think I'm the pioneer. I, I, I remember uh, watching Dante Bichette before me. He had a flip, and I thought it was really cool, and it, and it looked like he did it naturally. I mean, he threw his hands up in the air. Um, it just kind of came. I, I always got rid of the bat. Uh, if I hit a single, double, triple home run, the bat would kind of fling out of my hand. That's how I kind of dismounted the bat. And I remember I was playing in San Diego uh, I was playing for the Padres in 2000, first time I did it. And uh, an ex-teammate of mine, Stan Belinda, was pitching. I, I I don't remember if it was the Pirates. It doesn't matter. There was a runner on third. There's less than two outs. It was a big, big time in the game. Sack fly, and I think we tie the game. I pop up to the catcher. Stan Belinda runs over to me, gets in my face mid-game, and says, way to pop it up to the catcher, Boone. And... I, I kind of was like, this is not the time or the place to be being sarcastic, especially when you're on the other team. And I remember later in the season, I got him in a big situation late in the game. I hit a home run off him and I just kind of flipped my bat and I came back and my teammates were like, what was that? I said, uh, I don't know, but I, I wanted Stan to know that I, that I remember that time where he got in my face. Payback's a bitch. And um, that's how it started. Then I went to Seattle and I kind of just flipped a few and, my teammates started egging me on. I never took took it too serious. It was just the way I got rid of the bat. And then, 
you know, when I, when I hit a home run, I just kind of added to it and that's how it, how it came. And now people say oh, you're the pioneer. I don't necessarily think I was a pioneer. The, the bat flips I really like watching or, or the ones were like the, the natural ones, the one where you flip it and you're moving. Uh, the Ken Griffey Jr. follow through to me. That that's really cool. I, like I said, go back, Google Dante Bichette. He had a cool one when he was in Colorado. I really liked watching his. All right. Well, as far as flips are concerned, this would do it for this podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and we want to thank everybody for listening. I'm the technical director, producer of the Boom Podcast. EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content gets uploaded by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Move Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Do it again soon. See ya.